But whoso looketh into the perfect law of liberty, and continueth therein, he being not a forgetful hearer, but a doer of the work, this man shall be blessed in his deed. Chapter 1, verses 22 through 25. The word for beholdeth is a metaphor taken from those who not only glance at a thing, but bend their bodies towards it, that they may carefully scrutinize it, used in Luke 24.12 and 1 Peter 1.12, denoting earnestness of desire and diligent inquiry. To continue therein signifies a persevering study of the truth and abiding in the belief of and obedience to the same, thereby evidencing our love for it. Many have a brief taste for it, but their appetite is quickly quenched again by the things of this world. It is perfectly true, blessedly true, that there is no if, no uncertainty from the divine side in connection with the Christians reaching heaven. Everyone who has been justified by God shall without fail be glorified. Those who have been divinely quickened will most assuredly continue in the faith and persevere in holiness unto the end of their earthly course. This is clear from 1 John 2:19, where the apostle alludes to some in his day who had apostatized. They went out from us, but they were not of us. They belonged not to the family of God, though for a while they had fraternized with some of its members. For, adds the apostle, if they had been of us, had they really been one in a personal experience of the regenerating power of the Spirit, they would have continued with us. Nothing could have induced them to heed the siren voice of their seducers. But they went out from us that they might be made manifest that they were not all of us but merely temporary professors, stony ground hearers, nominal Christians, members of a totally different family. Previously, they had every appearance of being the genuine article, but by their defection they were exposed as counterfeits. No, there is no if from the divine side. Nevertheless, there is an if from the human side of things, from the standpoint of our responsibility, in connection with my making sure that I am one of those whom God has promised to preserve unto his heavenly kingdom, continuance in the faith and the path of obedience, in denying self and following Christ, is not simply desirable, but indispensable. No matter how excellent a beginning I have made, if I do not continue to press forward, I shall be lost. Yes, lost, and not merely miss some particular crown or millennial honors as the deluded dispensationalists teach. It is persevere or perish. It is final perseverance or perish eternally. There is no other alternative. Romans 11.22 makes that unmistakably clear. Behold, therefore, the goodness and severity of God on them that fell, the unbelieving Jews, severity. 
but toward thee saved Gentiles, verse 11, goodness, if thou continue in his goodness, otherwise thou also shalt be cut off. To continue in God's goodness is the opposite of returning to our badness. The evidence that we are the recipients of God's goodness is that we continue in the faith and obedience of the gospel. The end cannot be reached apart from the appointed means. But I cannot see the consistency between what has been set forth in the last two paragraphs. Some will exclaim, What of it? Who are you? Who am I? Merely short sighted creatures of yesterday, upon whom God has written folly and vanity? Shall human ignorance set itself against divine wisdom? Does any reader dare call into question the practice of Christ and his apostles? They pressed the if and insisted upon the needs be for this continuing, and those ministers who fail to do so, no matter what their standing or reputation, are no servants of God. Can you see the consistency between the apostle affirming so positively of those who have received the Holy Spirit from Christ? Ye shall abide, continue, the same Greek word as in all the above passages, in him, and then in the very next breath, exhorting them, and now, little children, abide, continue, in him, First John 2, 27 and 28. If you cannot, it must be because of theological blinders. Can you see the consistency of David asserting so confidently, The Lord will perfect that which concerneth me. By mercy, O Lord, endureth forever. And then immediately after, praying, Forsake not the works of thine own hands. Psalm 138, 8. If you cannot, then this writer places a big question mark against your religious profession. 5. By insisting that there are dangers to guard against. Here again, there will be those who object against the use of this term. Is such a connection? What sort of dangers, they will ask? Dangers of the Christians severing his fellowship with God, losing his peace, spoiling his usefulness, rendering himself unfruitful, granted, but not of missing heaven itself. They will point out that safety and danger are opposites, and that the one who is secure in Christ cannot be in any peril of perishing. However plausible, logical, and apparently Christ-honoring that may sound, we would ask, is that how Scripture represents the case? Do the epistles picture the saints as being in no danger of apostasy, or to state it less boldly, are there no sins warned against, no evils denounced, no paths of unrighteousness described, which, if persisted in, do not certainly terminate in destruction? And is there no responsibility resting on me in connection therewith? Apostasy is not reached at a single bound, but is the final culmination of an evil process, 
and it is against those things which have a tendency unto apostasy against which the saints are repeatedly and most solemnly warned. One who is now experiencing good health is in no immediate danger of dying from tuberculosis. Nevertheless, if he recklessly exposes himself to the wet and cold, if he refrains from taking sufficient nourishing food which supplies strength to resist disease, or if he incurs a heavy cough on his chest and makes no effort to break it up, he is most likely to fall a victim to consumption. So while the Christian remains spiritually healthy, he is in no danger of apostatizing. But if he starts to keep company with the wicked and recklessly exposes himself to temptation, if he fails to use the means of grace, if he experiences a sad fall and repents not of it and returns to his first works, He is deliberately heading for disaster. The seed of eternal death is still in the Christian. That seed is sin, and it is only as divine grace is diligently and constantly sought for the thwarting of its inclinations and suppressing of its activities that it is hindered from developing to a fatal end. A small leak which is neglected will sink a ship just as effectually as the most boisterous sea. And, as Spurgeon said on Psalm 19.13, Secret sin is a stepping stone to presumptuous sin, and that is the vestibule of the sin which is unto death. Treasury of David Did no dangers menace Israel after Jehovah brought them out of Egypt with a high hand and by his mighty arm conducted them safely through the Red Sea? Did all who entered upon the journey to Canaan actually arrive at the promised land? Perhaps someone replies, they were under the old covenant and therefore supply no analogy to the case of Christians today. What says the word this? They were all baptized unto Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and did all eat the same spiritual meat, and did all drink the same spiritual drink, for they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. What analogy could be closer than that? Yet the passage goes on to say, But with many of them God was not well pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. 1 Corinthians 10, 2-5 And what is the use which the Apostle makes of this solemn history? Does he say that it has no application unto us? The very reverse. Now these things were our examples to the intent that we should not lust after evil things as they also lusted, neither let us tempt Christ as some of them also tempted and were destroyed of serpents. Verses 6 through 9. Here is a most deadly danger for us to guard against. Nor did the apostle leave it at that. He was still more definite, saying, 
neither murmur ye, as some of them also murmured, and were destroyed of the destroyer. Now all these things happened unto them for examples, and they are written for our admonition, upon whom the ends of the world are come, making this specific application unto Christians. Wherefore let him that thinketh he standeth, take heed, lest he fall. Verses 10 through 12. Paul was no fatalist, but one who ever enforced moral responsibility. He inculcated no mechanical salvation, but one which must be worked out with fear and trembling. Charles Hodge of Princeton was a very strong Calvinist, yet on 1 Corinthians 10:12 he failed not to say, There is perpetual danger of falling, no degree of progress we have already made, no amount of privileges which we may have enjoyed can justify the want of caution. Let him that thinketh he standeth, that is, who thinketh himself secure, Neither the members of the church nor the elect can be saved unless they persevere in holiness. And they cannot persevere in holiness without continual watchfulness and effort, that is, against the dangers menacing them. The above is not the only instance when the apostle made use of the case of those Israelites who perished on their way to Canaan to warn New Testament saints of their danger, after affirming that God was grieved with that generation, saying, They do always err in their heart, and they have not known, loved my ways. So I swear in my wrath, they shall not enter into my rest. Paul added, Take heed, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. But exhort one another daily, while it is called today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. Hebrews three twelve and 13. We are not here warned against an imaginary peril, but a real one. Take heed, signifies watch against carelessness and sloth. Be on the alert as a soldier who knows the enemy is near, lest you fall an easy prey. Those here exhorted are specifically addressed as brethren to intimate there are times when the best of saints need to be cautioned against the worst of evils. An evil heart of unbelief is a heart which dislikes the strictness of obedience and universality of holiness which God requires of us. After referring again to those whose carcasses fell in the wilderness, to whom God swear they shall not enter into my rest because of their unbelief or disobedience. Chapter 3, verses 18 and 19. The apostle said, Let us therefore fear, lest a promise being left us of entering into his rest, any of you should seem to come short of it. Hebrews 4, 1. Fear is as truly a Christian grace as is faith, peace, or joy. The Christian is to fear temptations, the dangers which menace him, the sin which indwells him, 
the warnings appointed by others who have made shipwreck of the faith and the severity of God in his dealings with such. He is to fear the threatenings of God against a sin and those who indulge themselves in it. It was because Noah was moved with fear at the warning he had received from God that he took precautions against the impending flood. Hebrews 11:7. God has plainly announced the awful doom of all who continue in allowed sin and fear that doom will inspire caution and circumspection and will preserve from carnal security and presumption. And therefore are we counseled, passing the time of your sojourn here, in fear, First Peter 1.17, not only in exceptional seasons, but the whole of our time here. We can barely glance at a few more of the solemn cautions addressed, not merely to formal professors, but to those who are recognized as genuine saints. Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary the devil as a roaring lion walketh about seeking whom he may devour, whom resist steadfast in the faith. 1 Peter 5, 8 and 9. Obviously, such a warning would be meaningless if the Christian were not threatened with a most deadly danger. Ye therefore, beloved, seeing ye know these things before, beware, lest ye also, being led away with the error of the wicked, fall from your own steadfast net. Second Peter 3.17 This warning looks back to the false prophets of chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, and what is said of them in verses 18 through 22. The error of the wicked, here cautioned against, includes both doctrinal and practical, especially the latter, forsaking of the narrow way, the highway of holiness, which alone leads to heaven. Hold that fast which thou hast, that no man take thy crown. Revelation 3.11 Cling tenaciously to the truth you have received, the faith which has been planted in your heart, to the measure of grace given you. But how do you reconcile the Christian's danger with his safety? There is nothing to reconcile, for there is no antagonism. It is enemies and not friends who need reconciling, and warnings are the Christian's friend, one of the safeguards which God has placed around the truth of the security of his people, preventing them from resting it to their destruction. By revealing the certain consequences of total apostasy, Christians are thereby cautioned and kept from the same. A holy fear moves their hearts and so becomes the means of preventing the very evil they denounce. A lighthouse is to warn against recklessness as mariners near the coast so that they will steer away from the fatal rocks. A fence before a precipice is not superfluous, but is designed to call to a halt those journeying in that direction. When the driver of a train sees the signals change to red, he shuts off steam, thereby preserving the passengers under his care. 
The danger signals of Scripture to which we have called attention are heeded by the regenerate and therefore are among the very means appointed by God for the preservation of his people, for it is only by attending to the same they are kept from destroying themselves. In the foregoing volume, we devoted four sections to a setting forth of the principal springs from which the final perseverance of the saints in their cleaving unto the Lord, their love of the truth, and their treading the path of obedience does issue, or the grounds on which their eternal security rests. It is therefore fitting, if the balance of truth is to be duly observed, that we should give space unto a presentation of the safeguards by which God has hedged about this doctrine, thereby forbidding empty professors and presumptuous antinomians from trespassing upon this sacred ground. In this chapter, we have already dwelt upon five of these safeguards, and we now proceed to point out others. In such a day as this, it is the more necessary to enter into detail upon the present branch of our subject, that the mouths of certain enemies of the truth may be closed, that formalists may be shown they have no part or lot in the matter, that hyper-Calvinists, may be instructed in the way of the Lord more perfectly and his own people stirred out of their lethargy. 6. By insisting on the necessity for using the means of grace, there are some who assert that if God has regenerated a soul, he is infallibly certain of reaching heaven, whether or not he uses the means appointed. Yea, that no matter to what extent he fails in the performance of duty, or how carnally he lives, he cannot perish. Now we have no hesitation in saying that such an assertion is a grievous perversion of the truth, and in view of Satan's words to Christ, If thou be the Son of God, cast thyself down from a pinnacle of the temple, for it is written, He shall give his angels a charge over thee, and in their hands they shall bear thee up. Matthew 4, 6 There is no room for doubt as to who is the author of such a lie. It is a grievous perversion, because a tearing asunder of what God himself has joined together. The same one who has decreed the end has also ordained the means necessary unto that end. He has promised certain things unto his people, but he requires to be inquired of concerning them, and if they have not, it is because they ask not. Even among those who would turn away with abhorrence from the extreme form of antinomianism mentioned above, there are those who regard the use of means quite indifferently in this connection, arguing that whatever be required in order to preserve from apostasy, the Lord himself will attend unto, that he will so work in his people, both to will and to do of his good pleasure, that it is quite unnecessary 
necessary for ministers of the gospel to be constantly addressing exhortations unto them and urging to the performance of duty. But such a conclusion is thoroughly defective and erroneous, for it quite loses sight of the fact that God deals with his people throughout as moral agents, enforcing their responsibility. Whether or not we can see the consistency between the divine foreordination and the discharge of human accountability, between the divine decree and the imperativeness of our making use of the means of grace is entirely beside the point. Christ exhorted and admonished his apostles, and they in turn the churches, and that is sufficient. It is vain to pit our puny objections against their regular practice. Just as God has ordained material means for the accomplishment of his pleasure in the material realm, so he has appointed that rational agents shall use spiritual means for the fulfilling of his will in connection with spiritual things. He could make the fields fertile and the trees fruitful without the instrumentality of rain and sunshine. But it has pleased him to employ secondary causes and subordinate agents in the production of our food. In like manner, he could cause his people to grow in grace, make them fruitful unto every good work, and preserve them from everything injurious to their welfare, without requiring any industry and diligence on their part. But it has not so pleased him to dispense with their concurrence. Accordingly, we find him bidding them, Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Philippians 2.12 Labor, therefore, to enter into that rest, lest any man fall after the same example of unbelief. Hebrews 4.11 Promises and precepts, exhortations and threatenings suitable to moral agents are given to them calling for the employment of those faculties and the exercise of those graces which he has bestowed upon them. It is a serious mistake to suppose that there is any conflict between one class of passages which contain God's promises of sufficient grace unto his people and another class in which he requires of them the performance of their duty. In his exposition of Hebrews 3.14, John Owen pointed out that the force of the Greek rendered, if we hold the beginning of our confidence firm, unto the end denotes our utmost endeavor to hold it fast and to keep it firm and steadfast, adding, shaken it will be, opposed it will be, kept it will not be without our utmost diligence and endeavor. It is true our persistency in Christ does not, as to the issue and event, depend absolutely on our own diligence. The unalterableness of our union with Christ on the account of the faithfulness of the covenant is that which does and shall eventually secure it. But yet our own diligent endeavor is such an indispensable means 
for that end that without it it will not be brought about. Our diligent endeavor is necessitated by the precept which God commands us to make use of and by the order he has established in the relations of one spiritual thing to another. The older writers were wont to illustrate the consistency between God's purpose and our performance of duty by an appeal to Acts 27. The ship which carried the apostle and other prisoners encountered a fearful gale, and it continued so long and with such severity that the inspired narrative declares, All hope that we should be saved was then taken away. Verse 20. A divine messenger then assured the apostle, Fear not, Paul, thou must be brought before Caesar, and lo, God hath given thee all the lives of them that sail with thee. And so sure was the apostle that this promise would be fulfilled, he said unto the ship's company, Be of good cheer, for there shall be no loss of life among you but of the ship. For I believe that it shall be even as it was told me. Verses 21 through 25. Yet next day, when the sailors feared they would be smashed upon the rocks and started to flee out of the ship, Paul said to the centurion, Except these abide in the ship, ye cannot be saved. Verse 31. Now there is a nice problem which we would submit to the more extreme Calvinists. How can the positive promise, there shall be no loss of life, verse 22, and the contingent, except these abide in the ship, ye cannot be saved, verse 31, stand together. How are you going to reconcile them according to your principles? But in reality, there is no difficulty. God made no absolute promise that he would preserve those in the ship, regardless of their use of appropriate means. They were not irrational creatures he would safeguard, but moral agents who must discharge their own responsibility and neither be inert nor act presumptuously. Accordingly, we find Paul bidding his companions take meat, saying, This is for your health, verse 34. And later the ship was lighted of its cargo, verse 38, and its main sail hoisted, verse 40, which further conduced to their safety. The certainty of God's promise was not suspended upon their remaining in the ship, but it was a making known of the means whereby God would effect their security. Reverting to Owen's exposition of Hebrews 3.14, he said, Our persistency in our subsistence in Christ is the emergence and effect of our acting grace unto that purpose. Diligence and endeavors in this matter are like Paul's mariners when he was shipwrecked at Melita. The preservation of their lives depended absolutely on the faithfulness and the power of God. Yet, when the mariners began to fly out of the ship, Paul tells the centurion that unless his men stayed therein, they could not be saved. But why need he think of the ship men when God took upon himself the preservation of them all? He knew full well that he would preserve them, 
but yet that he would do so in and by the use of means. If we are in Christ, God has given us the lives of our souls and hath taken upon himself in his covenant the preservation of them. But yet we may say with reference unto the means that he hath appointed when storms and trials arise, unless we use our own diligent endeavors, we cannot be saved. Alas, that some who profess to so greatly admire this Puritan and endorse his teaching have wandered so far from the course which he followed. If it be asked, did the purpose of God that Paul and his companions should all reach land safely depend upon the uncertain will and actions of men? The answer is no, as a cause from which the purpose of God received its strength and support. But yes, as a means appointed by him to secure the end he had ordained, for God has decreed the subordinate agencies by which the end shall be accomplished as truly as he has decreed the end itself. In his word, God has revealed a conjunction of means and ends, and there is a necessity lying upon men to use the means and not to expect the end without them. It is at our peril that we tear asunder what God has joined together and disrupt the order he has appointed. The same God who bids us believe his promises forbids us to tempt his providences. Matthew 4, 7 Even though the means may appear to us to have no adequate connection with the end, seeing God has enjoined them, we must use the same. Naaman must wash in the Jordan if he would be cleansed of his leprosy, 2 Kings 4.10, and Hezekiah must take a lump of figs and lay it on his boil if he is to be recovered, 2 Kings 20.4-7. They are greatly mistaken who suppose that since the preservation of believers is guaranteed in the covenant of grace, that this renders all means and motives, exhortations and threatenings useless and senseless. Not so. The doctrine of the everlasting security of the saint does not mean that God will preserve him whether or not he perseveres, but rather that he has promised to give him all needed grace for him to continue in the path of holiness. This supposes that believers will be under such advantages and have suitable aids used with them in order to this, and that they shall have motives constantly set before them, which induce and persuade unto obedience and personal piety, and to guard them against the contrary. Hence the propriety and usefulness of the ordinances of the gospel, the instructions and precepts, the promises and incentives which are furnished us to perseverance, without which the purpose of God that we should persevere could not be effected in a way suited to our moral nature. Christians are indeed kept by the power of God. 1 Peter 1, 5. Yet it needs to be pointed out that they are not preserved mechanically as a child is kept in the nursery from falling into the fire by a tall metal fender or guard or as the unwilling horse is held in by bit and bridle. But spiritually, 
so by the workings of divine grace in them, and by means of motives and inducements from without, which call forth that grace into exercise and action. We quite miss the force of that declaration unless we complete the verse, who are kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. It is not for or because of faith, but through faith, yet not without it. For faith is the hand which, from the sense of utter insufficiency and helplessness, clings to God and grasps His strength, not always firmly, but often feebly, not always consciously, but instinctively. Though the saint be kept by the power of God, yet he himself has to fight every step of the way. If we read of this grace wherein ye stand, Romans 5.2, we are also told, For by faith ye stand, 2 Corinthians 1.24. Viewing the event from the standpoint of the divine decree, it was not possible that Herod should slay Christ in his infancy. Nevertheless, God commanded Joseph to use a means to prevent it by fleeing into Egypt in like manner from the standpoint of God's eternal purpose. It is not possible that any saint should perish, yet he has placed upon him the necessity of using means to prevent apostasy and everything which has a tendency thereto. True, he must not trust in the means to the exclusion of God, for those means are only efficacious by his appointment and blessing. On the other hand, it is presumption and not faith which talks of trusting God while the means are despised or ignored. Nor have we said anything in this section which warrants the inference that heaven is a wage that we earn by our own industry and fidelity. Rather do the means appointed by God mark out the course we must take if we would reach the desired goal. It is through faith and patience we inherit the promises. Hebrews 6:12. Our glorification will not be bestowed in return for them, yet there can be no glorification to those devoid of these graces. The sun shines into our rooms through their windows. Those windows contribute nothing whatever to our comfort and enjoyment of the sun. Yet, are they necessary as means for its beams to enter? The means and mediums which God has designed for the accomplishment of His ends concerning us are not such as to be conditions on which those ends are suspended in uncertainty as to their issue, but are the sure links by which he has connected the one with the other. Exhortations and warnings are not so much the means whereby God's promises are accomplished, as the means by which the things promised are wrought. 
God has promised his people sufficient grace to enable and cause them to make such a use of the means that they will be preserved from fatal sins or apostasy. And the exhortations, consolations, admonitions of Scripture are designed for the stirring up into exercise of that grace. The certainty of the end is assured not by the nature or sufficiency of the means in themselves considered, but because of God's ordination in connection therewith. God has assured his people that his grace shall be all-sufficient and that his strength shall be made perfect in their weakness, but nowhere has he promised a continuance of his love and favor unto dogs returning to their vomit or to sows which are content to wallow in the mire. If our thoughts on this subject be formed entirely by the teaching of God's word and not partly by carnal reason, then we shall expect perseverance only in that way wherein God has promised it, and that is by availing ourselves of the helps and advantages he has provided, especially the study of and meditation upon his word and the hearing or reading the messages of his servants. Though God has promised grace unto his people, yet he requires them to sincerely, believingly, earnestly seek it. Let us therefore come boldly unto the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find a grace to help in time of need. Hebrews 4:16. And that grace we are constantly in need of, as long as we are left here. Day by day the manna fell. Oh, to learn that lesson well. Much confusion has resulted on this and other points through failure to distinguish between impenetration and application, or what Christ purchased for his people, and God's actually making over the same unto them according to the order of things he has established. As faith is indispensable before justification, so is perseverance before glorification, and that necessarily involves the use of means. True, our faith adds nothing whatever to the merits of Christ in order to our justification, yet until we believe, we are under the curse of the law. Nor does our perseverance entitle us to glorification, yet only those who do persevere unto the end will be glorified. Now as God requires obedience from all the parts and faculties of our souls, so in his word he has provided motives to the obedience required, motives suited unto all that is within us, that love, fear, hope, etc. may be called into action. Of ourselves, we are not sufficient to make a good use of the means, and therefore we beg God to work in us that which he requireth. Colossians 1.29 God has promised to repair the spiritual decays of his people and to heal their backslidings freely, yet he will do so in such a way as wherein he may communicate his grace righteously to the praise of his glory. 
Therefore, our duties, especially that of confessions of sin to God, prescribed to us in order thereto. He that covereth his sins shall not prosper, but whoso confesseth and forsaketh them shall have mercy. Proverbs 28.13 I will heal their backsliding. Hosea 14.4 There is the promise and the end. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reform books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important when he says that God had commanded no such thing and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.